Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Hello, we'd like to welcome everyone to the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We're very grateful to have you with us today. And uh, we have a guest with us today that has a very unique program that he's bringing to market. His name is Donald Daughtry. And uh, he came on my radar uh, when I was talking with a friend and a client of mine about some of the unique opportunities that are in the marketplace in order to um, expand uh, development opportunities. And as you know, we talked to a lot of uh, developers and other investors on the program. And so we thought that it would be great to have Donald on it as well. So Donald, want to give you a hearty welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. John, appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Donald, just, um, you know, what, what piqued my interest in uh, wanting to have you on is uh, you're with a company called CLI and, you know, it represents credit leasing. And you're doing some very, very unique things there. But um, but before we get into that, tell us a little bit of, of your background. I know you're a partner in the firm, but um, how did you even get into this line of work and, and get into this niche marketplace? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, my background was in the college years was Villanova uh, for business administration. And I moved over to an accounting area and then into architecture. My degree was in architecture from uh, Temple University, and then moved on from there to work with Prudential Base Securities and their fund of funds. Um, as part and parcel of that, I attended uh, Wharton School for advanced studies in real estate and finance. Um, so I, I used, we'll call it both sides of the brain, so to speak, the architectural side and, and the financial slash accounting side of the, of the brain as well and fell into the area in terms of more into the financial aspects of development and from a perspective of being with a, a fund of fund or in those days, a, a REIT that provided capital to uh, developers uh, throughout the United States. So I was intimately involved in all facets of uh, development process, uh, commercial development processes throughout the eastern seaboard and, and mid-states in the United States during that time. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And how did that progress into um, where you are today? Yeah, actually. Yeah. So over a period of years and being in the business, we have had associates throughout that time and started working with uh, Murrafund back in the early 2000s. And then as part and parcel of developing the programs, and uh, we quickly found out that we wanted to move into based upon our investigations into the out of the operating lease component of the uh, business and move into the uh, financial lease or the FASB gasby area of financing because we knew that was the uh, the future of the business really lies within that for credit rated concerns throughout the United States. Okay, all right. <clears throat> so let, let's talk about that. You know, it's, it's interesting you bring about you said Prudential Securities, and uh, I've got a, a fond memory of uh, my early years with them. Uh, when I was running a mortgage bank, they were the firm that we had our relationship with. 
and built some very strong relationships there uh, back at that time with the top management there, the president of the of the firm and everything else. They were down at, I want to say it was, it was like 100 Water Street or somewhere right down there at the tip of Manhattan near uh, near where you pick up the Staten Island Ferry. So, Yeah, they were, they were a big firm at the time and mm-hmm. uh, obviously quite well known um, back in the, the 80s. And, yeah. uh, you know, again, they were the fund of funds and uh, provided capital to many REITs throughout the United States for the purposes of uh, real estate development. And yeah. also back in the 80s, there was a, a big push for historic tax credits as well. So that was a a, a big area for a lot of investors with uh, historic tax credits. Gotcha. Actually, went from from the uh, initial REIT, then moved over to a securities firm out of Philadelphia with their Sovereign Group, which was actually focused narrowly focused on historic tax credit projects. So large scale historic tax credit projects uh, throughout the Eastern Seaboard. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we got we got some things in common there. So go ahead. What were, what were you about to say? Yeah. So again, so the so it was interesting to be able to see both sides of the coin from a perspective of an, of an architect and a developer or record uh, in terms of commercial real estate development as opposed to historic restoration and tax credit uh, real estate. So it's it was a really interesting learning experience for me back in those days because I really had the chance to to see the inner workings of the uh, start tax credits and and the benefits that they provided to many of the citizens of those uh, cities throughout the United States that uh, were able to rehabilitate old abandoned buildings and then improve those buildings and, and really turn them into something that was a, you know, a sincere benefit for the, um, for the neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's fast forward. Let's get to, you know, you, you went and you joined Amerifund, which is a uh, interested platform. And just to define our terms, you were talking about FASB and GASB. Uh, what exactly is that? And how does Amerifund play into that and, and your and CLI as well as a, a spinoff of that? Sure, sure. So Amerifund, as I mentioned previously, it was formed in uh, 1993. And the emphasis from Amerifund's perspective is to minutely focus on single tenant projects, meaning that Amerifund would provide capital and funding to those entities that had a credit rating. So when, I look, look, when we look at credit rating, we're talking about Standard and Poor's, Moody's, Fitch credit mm-hmm. ratings. Um, we look for a, a minimum standard of triple B minus or better stable. So our focus really was narrowly zeroing in on U.S. government agencies, state and federal agencies. Mm-hmm. And the bulk of our business with Amerifund was for those agencies throughout the United States. You know, uh, for instance, we funded the largest IRS uh, national distribution center. We did VA out, outpatient clinics, other federal agencies throughout the United States, mm-hmm. um, working with hundreds and hundreds of federal government developers, providing that financing structure that enable them to then go into their RFPs with their financing in place. So, um, and at the same time, achieving 100% of cost to eliminate their need for equity. So I think, you know, in terms of providing a a great service to those developers that are out there, that 
that are in constant need of equity, we filled a gap that was sorely needed. And uh, on the other side of the coin, we provided uh, services to those federal, state, county government agencies throughout the United States that needed funding for those single tenant transactions. Uh, So from there... Actually, let me me pause right there because you you bring up something that I want to highlight. You mentioned about RFPs and Obviously, there's a lot of situations where uh, people want to participate in RFPs, but you, you're a little tentative to invest all the time and energy because you don't know if you're going to get your financing. So you brought up the point about having the, the ability to have the capital in place, not have to worry about equity, and have that before going in for the RFP. So when you're applying for the RFP, your capital is already in place. And in some cases, with 100% financing. Did I hear you correctly on that? Yes, Joe, very good point. So again, we work, we really pride ourselves on working hand in hand with our developers um, throughout the United States and providing them uh, guidance. So we like to work with them early in the process before they complete their RFP and submit that to the agency. Because from, from our perspective is that, you know, we're able to analyze the transaction, help them and guide them um, with respect to putting together the uh, financial components of that RFP and their their budgets as well. So when they go in for they submit their RFP, they're also submitting our letter with respect to representations with on financing for that particular project. So which helps them in the end in terms of the government reviewing their project and looking at one developer who has no mention of financing in place versus our RFP that has our letter from Amerifund stating that there is financing in place and this developer is qualified to move forward. So it, from that perspective, it, it really helps the entire process on, the, on both ends of the uh, spectrum. Yeah, that's that's very, very strong. That's very strong. So appreciate you you bringing that out. Obviously, if RFPs are being reviewed and one has financing and one doesn't, it's pretty obvious where the uh, inclination is going to be, uh, which one to go with. So that's that's very interesting. Now, as part of that, the main thing is to have a credit tenant in place, at least on the Amerifund side, from what you were saying. So if I've got a government agency, a GSE, or I have... Um, you know, some type of credit tenant, we'll just pick Walmart just to use a big name that everybody knows or an Amazon. Then in those cases, uh, this financing would be available as long as the uh, development team can deliver. Is that safe to say? Precisely. Yes, precisely. Yes. So we obviously look at the the background of the developer and we want to know that they have experience, depth of experience in that particular market sector. And uh, then we'll provide up to 115% loan to costs on the uh, on those particular projects with the credit rating, so it does not have to be a federal, city, county, or state government. It can be rated public operations or you know uh, operations like a uh, you know that have a, a credit rating but are not uh, a public entity as well. Okay, okay, all right. Appreciate that. So, just for the, the sake of um, our audience, define the terms for us. FASB and GASB, what exactly do those stand for? What do they mean? Yeah, so 
FASB is the Financial Accounting Standards Board, So, and GASB is the Government Accounting Standards Board. They were formed as a result of, and let me give you a little history in terms of mm-hmm. the history of lease accounting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 1939, soon after the, um, the uh, stock market crash of 1929, the government was looking for ways to set standards for accounting practices that ensured there was oversight in place in the real estate marketplace. So they formed a committee of uh, accountants through the American Institute of Accountants that created a a commission to oversee and regulate uh, the public accounting industry. We fast forward. So what happened was is that they formed this, this structure And as a result of that structure, they came up with an operating lease, which was to become eventually an off-balance sheet transaction. So at the time when it was formed, the intent was to have that as an on-balance sheet transaction, but it was changed and it it never became an off-balance transaction. So during that time, you look at the, the progression of history so from 39 on, 49 came about, 64, we ran through the 60s, the 70s, utilizing these operating leases for the purposes of commercial real estate uh, development. And they did quite well, and obviously the uh, developers did quite well as well. But in 2009, as you recall, or I'm sorry, in 2001, as you recall, the uh, Enron situation came up. Mm-hmm. And... As a result of that disaster with uh, Enron, and as you know, they were a $100 billion company at the time with well over 28,000 staff members. What happened there is that it really prompted, based upon the scandal, the SEC to start looking into the accounting practices that would allow this type of massive corporate fraud. Um, So the, the SEC quickly discovered through their investigations into Enron that these off-balance sheet operating leases was the uh, loophole which allowed Enron to become so large so quick and uh, defraud uh, millions and millions of individuals. So the silver lining to that is that, um, you know, as a result of the investigation by the SEC back in uh, 2001, they were able to identify the off-balance sheet operating lease loophole. So from that point forward, they started their investigations and continued with the, uh, the discussions with the accounting groups throughout the United States. And in uh, 2009, they started to look at the uh, specific structure of on-balance sheet transaction versus off-balance sheet transactions. So um, as a result of that, FASB and GASB were formed, and uh, they were independent organizations outside of the uh, U.S. government, FASB and GASB. And there's also ISB, which is the International Standards Board, uh, which governs international transactions, accounting transactions as well. So they all, all the organizations became involved in drafting structure uh, for the coming years. As a result of that structuring, we now have, as of January 2021, FASB came into play. So it was delayed for some years because of legislation and, and movement back and forth. But uh, we have a structure in place now 
which governs FASB as of January 2021, and then uh, GASB came into play in March of uh, 2020. So there is a structure in place that uh, there's accounting standards that are set so that these historical operating leases um, now need to become finance leases so that they are on the books, mm-hmm. they're on your balance sheet, and it um, provides a difference in terms of the historic structure was based upon 20 years of depreciation. Uh, with okay. the new FASB and GASB situation structure, where you're allowed up to 50 years, depending upon the type of asset, um, whether it be a private asset or a government-based asset, but up to 50 years in terms of depreciation, which really provides an incentive, mm-hmm. um, which the government really wants um, organizations, agents, government agencies, and private rated companies throughout the United States to own their real estate, which was the original okay. intent, but it just never got there. Got you. Got you. So I, I get it. You know, that, that's one of those questions where uh, you went a lot deeper than I, I thought <laughs> I thought you were going to go. But, but that's OK. That's OK. It helps us to appreciate that uh, everything is is above board and by the book and that there's government regulation there to keep it in place. You mentioned about a, a 50 year depreciation, which I, I think is pretty interesting, because if you go to sell an asset, you want to obviously feature the tax advantages to the buyer. And to uh, be able to do that by able to highlight the increased depreciation, because most people aren't going to hold a building for 50 years if you're an investor uh, or even a developer. You know, generally it's somewhere between three to five, seven, maybe stretching out to 10 years, but usually not 50. So it seems like that's a that's a selling advantage from hearing you correctly. Well, and Joel, it's a really good point too, with respect to the uh, the structure for uh, credit lease investments. Yes, so let's say that the uh, a company comes in there, they have a credit rating. It's a maybe a state agency. They want to sign a lease for uh, twenty years. Well, if they have a forty-year depreciation window, mm-hmm. um, at the end of that twenty, they can reset for an additional twenty years. So, again, it's it, it gives the Rated concern, the opportunity and the ability to really start to um, see a structure that has great benefit for them. It really gives those credit rated concerns the opportunity to uh, reset the clock, so to speak, and continue with the uh, depreciation going forward. So, from an investor standpoint, you're right. I mean, it's a it's a great play in terms of uh, marketing a product for a potential sale. Yeah, yeah, very true. So let, let's talk about that because I, I want to get a little bit more into the, the weeds on this. CLI is the uh, group that you're in, in one of the partners of at this particular point in time. And I understand you're doing uh, nonprofit facilities, public-private institutions, and also uh, energy programs as well. So um, our group is more so focused on the real estate side, but um, I wanted to float that out there. But t- to walk me through a, a scenario, if, if you don't mind. Let's say I'm a developer. I know about an RFP that I want to participate in. The team has experience. And uh, as long as I get that credit tenant and start formulating the numbers, uh, is that the point in time where we will bring you guys in? Yes. So again, we we like to be early to the process uh, Mm -hmm. to work side by side with the client to help formulate that, that structure moving forward so we can help with the to ensure success of the project. So 
let's say it's a, a build to suit project for a, a local concern that's credit has a credit rating, we would provide the lease term with range anywhere from 15 to 30 years on the lease, and that would be the choice of the uh, credit tenant. We would be the uh, lessor. There would be at the end of that lease term, anywhere from 15 to 30 years, there would be a $1 buyout by the lease guarantor. Um, and they would own it free and clear at that point. So it gives them a great deal of opportunity with respect to, to moving forward with an asset that's free and clear on their books. Yeah. And that's, that's um, quite interesting as well. I want to circle back to that, but take me to uh, through how I would get to, you mentioned 105, 15% loan to cost uh, financing, which is quite interesting. But I, I guess the first thing that we have to be clear about is that this is a ground lease type situation, right? So it's a, well, or am I misunderstanding? Actually, no, we can, we can work. Uh, so there's two sides of the platform. So the, okay. uh, the original side of the platform for our first platform was Amerifund. So they are focused in the area of development where there is going to be a, still going to be an operating lease in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, under that platform with Amerifund, we could provide up to 115% loan to cost where the developer also is the owner and leases it, continues to lease that that structure, that built structure to the credit rating concern. So that's that applies to that type of structure. Um, that's a hundred. That's hundred up to one hundred fifteen percent loan to cost. Now on the credit lease investment side, we provide a hundred percent of the funds required by the developer to come in and do a build to suit, but not own. So it changes the business model for the developer, but it gives them a cash flow model now, as opposed to a continued monthly income on an operating lease. But with the new finance lease, the developer comes in, we work with them at the early stage, we develop the lease for the uh, guarantor. The developer is now the developer of record. So they'll still receive their monthly developer fee throughout the course of the construction. And at the end of that construction period, they, in a successful project, they receive their profit and then walk away to their next project. And they're out of the project at that point because the guarantor of the lease is now construed uh, based upon the IRS as a equitable owner of that real estate and has that uh, opportunity at the end, again, to buy out that lease for a dollar. So from our perspective, it gives the developer now two options with which to conduct business and build a portfolio. So they can build a portfolio on one side of a balance, looking at a balanced portfolio of some of, some of their assets, they're built to suit and they continue to own them and lease them. Other portions of their asset portfolio are, are uh, items that they build to suit, but now are part of the new cash flow model. So it, it's a benefit from both sides of the, from my perspective, of both sides of the operation. Gotcha, gotcha. And I thank you for clarifying that because I was trying to get to the point of how does the tenant buy out the lease for a dollar at the end? But um, now you've explained it. So if the developer is not the owner, he's just doing it for, for you know, he's a fee developer, basically. Then at that point in time, the tenant Correct. is actually Correct. able to buy it yes. out for a dollar. Right? Correct. Okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, yes. And if you look back, you know, if you say, if you look back and, and start to say, let's say over a period of 10 years going forward or 15 years going forward from this point, you start to have these assets, you being the, the least guarantor of the credit rated concern. Um, if you look over a period of time and you start owning these assets free and clear, it will be um, a solid um, positive for your credit rating with the particular agencies out there, the Standard and Poor's and the Moody's, because they're going to start seeing that, oh, um, you know, this rated concern XYZ owns all this real estate free and clear. Um, so they have a, a lot of benefit in terms of uh, their bottom line, as well as the opportunity to have a better credit rating or solidified yeah. credit rating as well going forward. That that's interesting, um, and I, I want to circle back to that with a question of something that just has come up in the news. But one question I did want to ask on this uh, credit lease side of the table: Do they have to stay in the lease for a particular period of time, or could they, you know, pay it off at any period of time? Or is there penalties if they pay off early? You know, how does that work? No, good question. Yeah. So the way it's structured with CLI is that we have it anywhere from 15 to 30 year lease. Let's say they're in a 15 year lease. Um, obviously, the incent, all the incentives are there for them to stay in that lease and then exercise that that one dollar buyout. If in the event uh, they were to terminate early in that uh, process, there would be a, a fixed buyout of the lease at that point. Okay, well, that makes sense because you're you're losing that cash flow, which is why I asked the question. And so in the loss of that, you obviously want to recoup some of that by having some type of, you know, we'll just call it a payoff penalty in that particular case. So that, that makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So but all but all the benefit is to to for the client is to own and and conduct the uh, the buyout at the end of the lease. Right, right. Now, I want to talk about something that's kind of interesting as well. Um, everybody knows that. Amazon has been leasing up space like it's nobody's business, you know, around the country to uh, keep up with demand. But as of late, they've been saying that they want to own their facilities as opposed to just running their facilities. How do you think your program can come into play with that? Or are you kind of seeing the same things I'm seeing? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, no, very good point. They uh, are starting to move toward uh, ownership, internal ownership. Mm -hmm. And, um, which is a good thing in many respects. So I think that there's a brilliant opportunity out there for developers all throughout the United States to, to become involved in that process and to add to their portfolio, we'll call it, of um, a business structure because they'll have um, assets that are continuing to receive monthly rent from and then they'll also have our, this new cash flow model. So it, it will be a, a tremendous um, upside, I believe, for for um, Amazon and companies like that, that uh, realize that owning their real estate is really the, the wave of the future where they need to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite interesting. So, all right. Well, fantastic. Well, let me do this. I want to open it up to the audience. I generally save the last 20 minutes or so for um, participation, but this is quite a, an interesting discussion. And I wanted to go ahead kind of early and, and get everyone involved. So if you do have any questions, guys, go ahead and put that in the chat. Or just uh, you can raise your digital hand as well if you want to do that and um, <clears throat> be happy to uh, to get you involved in the discussion here. So we appreciate that. So while those those questions are being formulated, what would you feel or who do you view as being your ideal client uh, in a situation like this? You know, what is the 
that bread and butter client that you really like to go after that really fits well within the structure of what you're doing? Well, let me let me answer that question a, uh, from a personal perspective in terms of what I like to pursue um, mm-hmm. within the realm of our, our company, um, which is CLI. So I am distinctly interested in healthcare. Um, okay. So I believe that based upon, and we like to say at CLI that we hit singles and only singles uh, because we're not out to hit the grand slam with every project. Um, we're out to hit singles and have the best interest of the uh, client at heart. So in, in thinking about that and applying that, you know, my personal uh, perspective is and and <clears throat> focus is healthcare. So if we can allow healthcare concerns to build their real estate cheaper or less expensive with uh, without cost overruns, we can al- then allow them to, what that then does allow them to is to put that those funds, sorely needed funds into patient care and to research and development for, for medical discovery projects. So that's why there's such a strong interest from my part on, in terms of, uh, you know, the healthcare sector. Um, it's helping our patient needs and helping those concerns continue to develop uh, new breakthrough drug therapies as well. Okay. Okay. So with that being said, I guess we could say that your target asset class is uh, office and industrial. Would that be safe to say? The general target office class, uh, target class is, um, yes, it is, it is office. So it'd be state, federal, county, government agency offices. But if the, um, let's say the uh, county wants to build an ice skating rink, we will supply the capital to facilitate the build of that ice skating rink or a stadium or a, a conference center. We will supply the capital to build that as well through their developer or directly. Okay. Now, that's quite interesting because those asset classes are generally harder to finance, you know, stadiums and conference centers and things of that sort. So I appreciate you bringing that uh, to our attention. What about industrial? You you didn't mention much about that, but what are your your thoughts on industrial? Do you have any reservations with that? Is that an asset class you stay away from? You know, what's your thoughts? No, actually, industrial, you know, there's industrial market is so strong these days, and it's uh, such a great asset class from our perspective is that you know we have these these rated credit rated concerns throughout the United States that are quickly moving into you know logistics centers and and last mile centers mm-hmm. um, and we wholeheartedly support that that effort uh, from a perspective of providing capital to those concerns that uh, that are in need of those uh, industrial facilities to uh, facilitate distribution. Okay. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I thought that that would be a strong target for you. So that's why I was kind of curious about that because industrial, obviously, like you said, is very hot right now. So it could be a lot of opportunity there in this particular space. One thing just to uh, go back to real quick, and I know you said that this was on the other side of the house, but the 115% financing, uh, what does that additional 15% go toward? Well, that could be um in terms of uh, capital that the uh, particular developer wants to draw out. And again, we, it goes back to maybe looking at what the needs of the developer are in terms of how they want to build their portfolio. So if they're interested in cash flow, 
um, mm-hmm. during the term of the lease, they won't use up that, we'll call it that 115% loan to cost. They'll stay more within traditional range and just secure enough equity to complete the project. But if they're interested in some cash flow right after completion of the project, they can receive cash at the end of the process by utilizing that up to 115% loan to cost component of the process. So it's a, it's a matter of perspective in, in terms of what the developer needs are. Mm-hmm. And some developers, you know, have a, let's say they have a 15 year lease or a 10 year lease and they're not really interested in cash flow. They're really interested in the end game. They'll, they'll take the, uh, the cash up front and then uh, bank the asset um, for that period of time. And um, our leases, um, as a note here, is all our leases are triple net. So we look for a triple net lease. Okay. So if you're doing a CBS or a Walgreens, something along that line, it's a good fit for that type of development as well. But again, the developer has the option um, with us to work within our guidelines to provide uh, the uh, end product and at the same time provide themselves with the opportunity for a, a cash flow or a limited cash flow on a monthly basis. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So could that 15% be used for uh, pre-development and uh, soft costs on a project? Well, sure. Yeah, sure. So prior to the project uh, going live and mm-hmm. a, um, a developer coming to us, there's inherent pre-development costs that uh, oftentimes are add up quickly. So land acquisition, carry costs, um, mm-hmm architectural, engineering, Surveys, uh, planning, legal. zoning, <laughs> legal. <laughs> goes on and on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it becomes a big team very quickly, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, obviously vital to the mission. But um, so with respect to that, those funds that are needed for those particular items, yes, we, we will reimburse for those uh, funds as part and parcel of our funding process mm-hmm. and the development of those particular assets. Okay. All right. So it'll be a reimbursement model in that case. Exactly. Yes. All right, gotcha. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Quinn, he has a question here. Um, he put it in the chat box. So I'll go ahead and read it to you, uh, Don. He said, uh, what is the traditional profile of the developers that your company works with? Are JVs preferred for new, less experienced developers? And if a developer is interested in the financing product, what's the best way to engage? Interesting. Yeah, great question, Quinn. The typical process is that the uh, developer um, that we come in contact with um, has experience in that market sector. But if they don't, um, that's not should not be an impediment to breaking into the industry. Because, you know, again, from my perspective, I like to see the more people that we have in the industry, the better off the industry will be. So I typically go out of my way to uh, help those individuals with respect to uh, guiding them through the, uh, the the process of uh, structuring a JV. And at times, you know, we have a rather large stable of clients um, throughout the United States. And there's oftentimes that we'll make recommendations for one of our clients to touch base with and possibly form a relationship with for a potential joint venture to help that individual break into the industry. So I like to see industries that are wide open, uh, non-restrictive, um, that provide everyone with an opportunity to get into the 
the industry. And again, as you know, with respect to what's going on in the real estate market today, um, there's there's brilliant opportunity here, especially in the industrial sector. So, yeah. So, or like putting together a uh, a transaction for a government agency. So I had a gentleman who was with uh, one of the large firms out in the uh, commercial firms in the marketplace, and he handled uh, specifically government types of leases, but he wanted to break into the development side of the, of the uh, operation. So we're able to work with him to provide him introductions to our developers and um, form j- joint venture for him and provide him the uh, capital in which to get off the ground, we'll call it, and uh, get his uh, feet wet on the development side of the coin and uh, move forward into you know, a successful career in developing projects, build the street projects for city, county, federal governments, and, and private sector as well. Okay. All right. Well, quite interesting. And, and I guess on the engagement side, Quinn, I guess just get in touch with me and I'll help facilitate the process of getting this done. Uh, if you know somebody that wants to jump in. So, you know, that's part of the, uh, the value that we can bring to the table. So that, that's quite interesting. Let me, let me ask it. Oh, first of all, Quinn, did that answer your question? You give me a thumbs up or, or something. Hopefully it did. Okay, cool. Thank you. Oh, there's a thumbs up. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Appreciate that, Quinn. (laughs) Okay, all right. Let me ask this also about, uh, does it have to be ground up? Can it be renovation? Can it be repurposing an existing building? Or does it have to be ground up Uh, construction? No, great point, Joel. Great point, really is. So there is a number of opportunities out there today with respect to the, that I'm seeing quite a bit of in the healthcare industry where they're taking existing buildings and coming in and renovating and, and retrofitting for adaptive reuse mm-hmm. um, for healthcare. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, yes, it, we do like to see those types of projects as, as well. And we will provide the same type of support that we do for a ground up as well as a uh, renovation or adaptive reuse project. So okay. yes, there's also, uh, let's say there's a, uh, instead of a build a suit, um, there's also opportunity with respect to uh, sale leaseback or a purchase leaseback. So okay. let's say a company's in a, in a lease, they have three years left to go and they wanna purchase that asset at the end of the lease. Well, we could step in and structure it so that they'll be able to purchase their assets mm-hmm. um, prior to the end of their lease and buy out the uh, the developer and or the owner or the investor in that particular project. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right, sounds good. And what what's a typical range of a deal that you guys are involved in? Like, let's say what's the low end if you were just doing a, a Walgreens that's a standalone facility you know, or maybe even something smaller. So what, what's your range? What's the high end and the low end, would you say? Certainly, sure. So so on the Amerifund side, we typically run anywhere from three to 300 million. Okay. Um, on the CLI side, the credit lease investment side, we are typically at a minimum of um, 5 million and uh, run up to uh, 300 million. We can go higher, but uh, on uh, staged tranches, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, we like to, to keep it within the realm of, of respectability. Okay, all right. So well, 300 million is a, is a big check. So that would be a <laughs> sizable project uh, to say the least. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But you know, some of those Amazon structures out there are, exceed that. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can believe that Tesla as well. You know, they've got some pretty. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. are 
on some of these uh, campus style, I guess it really doesn't matter to you as long as the, the total project falls within the, uh, the envelope of what you're doing. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's look at another opportunity here too. It's for universities. So okay. uh, there's universities throughout the United States. We provide capital for say student housing mm-hmm. or the university needs a, a new field house or a new classroom buildings or science center. Uh, we could provide capital to those um, rated universities and colleges throughout the United States for structured financing as well. Okay. All right. I didn't think about universities. So thank you for bringing that up. Are there any other asset classes that perhaps we don't readily think about that we should consider and should be on our radar? Anything that has a credit rating, say a county, city, or a state government, um, Mm -hmm. what projects they want to pursue and they're if they're willing to provide a lease we will provide uh, the capital for the uh, build out of that project it could be a a trash to steam facility mm-hmm. um, energy t- sector type of projects um, we'll provide that with their guarantee and they're then signing that lease we'll provide that capital as well or it could be infrastructure to um, you know set up a road system to um, facilitate a uh, science center, but they need extensive uh, infrastructure work. Um, we'll provide that capital as well. All right. So, so infrastructure downtown. Well. Yeah. Downtown development mm-hmm. zone. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. All right. That's quite interesting. You know, th- this is, um, it's interesting because a lot of these asset classes are, are definitely harder to finance. Uh, you're talking infrastructure, you're talking, even student housing sometimes has its challenges, but stadiums, conference centers, things of that sort, you know, wastewater treatment facilities. Uh, it could be anything from what you're, you're telling me. Even I know you do energy. So um, even if it's uh, power related facilities, uh, you would fund Correct. that as well. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. So there's, there's a lot of opportunities that are up outside of the box that are more niche, if you will. Uh, where these opportunities exist. And um, I, I think that's quite interesting from that standpoint. So, yeah, yeah. and it provides individuals um, that, let's say, are out there, let's say they're in the energy, energy sector and they have a wealth of experience in the ener- energy sector mm-hmm. um, from the inside, but they want to start developing those type of assets on their own as a developer. You know, again, we can we can assist them with respect to providing our wealth of experience and then providing insight into that type of structured financing and then also make introductions for them so that they can facilitate a joint venture to to allow them to become a, a full-time developer in the energy sector. So again, mm-hmm. it's, it's all about you know new starts, expanding our industry and, and mm-hmm. getting more people in the, into the industry. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. So really the key is just having the credit tenant. So you got to call like a Quinn Green and say, Quinn, I need a credit tenant. And, uh, you know, with exactly. that, you're to the races. Yes. <laughs> so, exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. That, <laughs> you're in the sounds... saddle and moving forward. Yes. Right, right, right. No, that's, um, that's quite interesting and quite insightful. There was another question I had. It just kind of escaped me right quick, but we're down to like the last 10 minutes. You know, this has been really insightful and it's a little bit of a a detour from what we normally cover in our podcast here, but I thought this one was very, very good because of the uniqueness of the product. As you know, uh, this podcast is generally highlighting uh, minorities that have done you know, great things in commercial real estate and how they've got there. And 
part of knowing how to get there is knowing the right types of financing and programs and opportunities that are available to help get you there. You know, this is uh, quite insightful because it's not something that I would think you have a tremendous amount of competition with. I'm saying from our side of the table, you know, uh, not not yours from that standpoint. Um, but it gives you an opportunity to do some things that are out the box and, and really create value for yourself, uh, for you guys, as well as the client. So I think this is uh, this is pretty good from this standpoint. Derek wanted uh, direct contact information. I can send out an email later on uh, giving you Don's contact information. So happy to do that. And then Quinn. Yeah, actually, that, that's what I was leaning toward when I said I, I forgot the question that I wanted to ask. Quinn, thank you for bringing that up. Um, he asked the question, how does the Build Back Better plan play into the options of sustainability and infrastructure development with your company? Is open to funding? Also, is ESG part of your funding underwriting decision for new products? So I guess let, let's answer the first one first, because I don't think you can see these questions, Don. Uh, how does the Build Back Better plan play into the options of sustainability and infrastructure development uh, at the company? And is is the company open? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So absolutely, with respect to the Build Back Better program that our president is implementing, with respect to that, um, you know, you're looking at massive uh, infrastructure projects to help restore bridges, mm -hmm. um, to help restore roadways, um, sewer systems, uh, stormwater systems, water purification systems throughout the United States. So there's a massive effort and there's a you know massive amount of work we need to do as a country to restore our infrastructure and make our country stronger. So as a result of that, uh, we can work with the, if they're uh, local organizations, let's say a, a county or a city or a state, or even the federal government agencies, if they're pursuing those types of activities with respect to um, the president's programs and um, implementing these infrastructure programs, we can help to provide that, that capital as long as we have that lease in place and that guarantee from that uh, rate of concern. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. So it's the guarantee from the tenant or the the person who's going to be signing the lease that really uh, matters in that case. Exactly. Or, yeah, or the government agency that's going to be the, the guarantor. Right, exactly. right. So it's their guarantor that drives the equation for mm -hmm. us. Yeah, mm -hmm. I get it. Yep. I get it. All right. Also, is ESG part of your funding, underwriting, decision-making for new projects? Yeah, no, I think, it, it, it again, it, it goes back into the you know, new directives that our president's trying to, to implement. And, you know, we can work within those guidelines and provide capital for those the ESGs that I think that uh, there's brilliant opportunity there as well. Okay. All right. And, uh, Quinn, we're asked to define ESG. So what do you mean by ESG? Or, Don, if you know, you can go ahead and say it for the sake of our audience. Sure. Sure. So environmental, social and government practices that, uh, you know, investments that, right. you know, material that have a real beneficial material impact um, mm -hmm. for society. Right. Right. Exactly. OK. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. So. All right. Well, this has been uh, quite insightful. Um, you know, I appreciate you reaching out to me and, um, you know, wanting to make this happen. And, uh, you know, we, like I said, it's a detour from what we normally do, but I jumped at the opportunity to have you on because I thought it would be good. So uh, I certainly appreciate you you reaching out and, you know, making this part of the discussion and us coming together to make it happen. Is there any 
anything else that you want to add before we uh, we wrap up for the day? Uh, Joel, I would just like to thank you and, and your staff, Try, and, and the rest of your staff and team there. Uh, really appreciate all their help with respect to us getting this call set up and the program. And I'd like to thank your uh, participants as well. And I'm here to answer questions. Uh, we like to call it 24-7. Okay. All right. Don't take that literal, but, <laughs> but, but we'll keep that in mind. And uh, yes. you said you're, you're based out of uh, the DC market, right? That's, that's where Correct. you're out of? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Our headquarters is in Vernon Hills, Chicago, outside of Chicago. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, Don, it's, it's been great. Uh, really insightful. Um, you know, one thing that we try to do with this podcast is, is really show all the different ways of creating opportunity and being able to build your real estate business. And I think having uh, this product in our hip pocket is certainly advantageous uh, to be able to get into some larger deals that you normally wouldn't be able to get into. You know, it's, it's been very insightful. Quinn, appreciate the good questions there related to the type of projects and, um, you know, especially participating in what the government has coming down the pipe with all the infrastructure. Uh, it could be a, a real game changer for some. Uh, as they continue to try to expand their their real estate investment and portfolio, so I definitely and let's, let's hope we get get more participants in the in the field. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Don, thank you again, and uh, all our participants, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate you being here today. And uh, this has been the uh, mornings with Joel CRE podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to having you back again for a future edition of our show. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.